Hello, I'm your host Jim McLean. Welcome to the latest edition of the Bandaflix podcast. So with a packed show for you this week, I'm going to be speaking with director Simon Hunter about his film Edie, which will be screened at this year's Belfast Film Festival. I'll be speaking with director Corey Finlay and actress Anya Taylor-Joy about Thoroughbreds, which is out this week. And we'll wrap up as I talk with Banterflix's very own Chris Gray about Ghost Stories, which is also out this week. So to kick things off, here's my interview with Simon Hunter about his film Edie. Film stars Sheila Hancock, it's going to be screened at the Belfast Film Festival. I caught up with Simon last year at the Edinburgh Film Festival where the film received its world premiere. Nancy, I'm letting you know I'm going away for a few days. So should I at least get your name or something? Edith Moore. You're not thinking about going up Sylvan, are you? Don't be ridiculous. The smart ones. They hire someone with experience to take them up that mountain. Oh. All right, then. I think we'll just start off nice and slow. He does know stuff about camping. Give that a go. We'll put some hairs on your chest. Oh, thank you. Oh, come on, it's part of the course. You've got to do it. Ooh, that's nice. Yeah? the story of uh, an 83-year-old lady who's had a miserable, embittered, pretty downbeat life. Nothing has, has gone her way. And at the very end of her life, she's about to head into old folks' home and faces death, and she decides that she wants to rekindle a little bit of the magic of her childhood, and she heads off to, to Sutherland, to Ascent, um, to climb a mountain, something she was always going to do with her father but never did, and... Um, off she goes to do it and uh, it's the story of her going to Scotland she never you know it's all a fantasy really in her mind she's never really going to do it but she meets a little guy who runs a camping shop Johnny played by Kevin Guthrie and he helps her he trains her reminds her how shows how what new tents are like today and what little gas stoves can do today and you know Edie's got all this equipment from the 1950s it's all ancient and he says you know what about this what about that and and by the end of it she's got enough confidence that he manages to persuade us, says, you can do this. It's a very different film from previous features in your, your, your yes, back catalogue. So yes, how did you come involved with, with the project? I think, um, in all truthfulness, the last film I did with Mute Chronicles was a big visual effects post-production film, and it was, it was two years of post, and it was like getting stuck in the mud, really. It's like a World War I kind of thing, and just with one shot after another, you have to sort, and then another. And I, I remember saying it, and it was gruelling, and it was just it wasn't a pleasant experience. And at the end, I said, you know what, the next film, I want to grab a 16mm camera and go outside and do something in the wilderness, which is what I love. I like, you know, I trek a lot and stuff and climb mountains and things. I want to just go and do something I love, and I don't care if there's, whether there's an audience for it or not, who knows. But that's what I want to do. And, you know, and you always think it's going to be six months from then, <laughs> dissolved to five years later, and, then there, and there you are. So it was that, really. It was a reaction to that. And I really enjoyed, actually, this film. I really think it's probably more me and... Um, and it's material I love, really. And if you love something, then you can always, you can always fall back on, oh, do you know what? I love it. Let's keep it in. As opposed to thinking, oh, well, the audience wants to see this. And you, it's not a good way of, of working creatively, I think. 
And what was it like working with your, your leading lady? Oh, amazing. I mean, she's the most incredible woman I think I've ever met. I mean, she's intelligent. Um, she, I mean, just to have done the, physically done the role as well as an amazing performance. I mean, it's just so tender and beautiful. I, I, I mean, I think I've seen a lot of her work, obviously, because we were, when we were casting it, I don't think she's done better work. It's the most beautiful thing she's done. Um, and physically combined to that as well, you know, she... You know, she, it was a 14-kilometre trek to the very base of the mountain. Then she had to climb the mountain, and that's after two weeks of being in the rain, doing night shoots, 14-hour days, six days a week, in every scene, pretty much. I think she's in about 97% of the film. I mean, unbelievable, at 83 years old. I mean, uh, not, I'm, I won't be doing that at 83. <laughs> my, my last question is, what yeah, do you yeah. hope audiences will take? from this film tonight? Um, well, I do, you don't want to be pretentious. I mean, everyone thinks the world's in a pretty shitty place at the moment and dark and, and things. And this film, I hope, is saying to people that the world actually sometimes is wonderful and it can be even later in your life if you want to make it wonderful. And, you know, if somebody you can relieve if you have bitter memories or you haven't quite fulfilled everything you've wanted to do, which is, I think, everybody feels that at some point. You know, um, you can turn that around, and um, uh, you know, and I hope we have a little bit of the wondrous world in our film that I hope people will will take from it. So that's my interview with Simon about Edie, and I recommend trying to catch the film during this year's Belfast Film Festival. We'll move on to a film that's out this week, and that is Thoroughbreds. And last year at the London Film Festival, I caught up with the film's writer-director, Corey Finlay, and one of its leading ladies, Anya Taylor-Joy, at its UK premiere, and here's that interview. How'd you find me? Asked around. Yes. That is so unprofessional. You know, I wouldn't... I wouldn't normally make a sale under these circumstances. Good thing you need the business. I don't need the business. Okay. Th this is a temporary gig. Fun. I have had to hustle for everything that I have. You don't know where I come from. Westchester. If you have no idea, give me five max ten years I will be running this game all up the coast. I will be the guy. Hello to you, sir. So can, can, can we start? Can you tell me a wee bit about the, the genesis of the film? Sure. So the film started as a play, and um, over time I adapted it into a screenplay, tried to kind of extract the heart of the play and make it work visually. Um, it is about, it's about this volatile relationship between two teenage girls uh, that sort of leads them into a murder plot. And at its core, I think it's about questions of what makes us good or bad people and uh, how sort of our emotions and our emotional instincts play into our morality. Tell me about your two leading ladies. So Olivia Cook and Anya Taylor-Joy um, are both phenomenal actors. Um, they're both They've had fascinating careers in just a few, the last few years. Um, I think that they are sort of naturals at holding the camera, and I think they're also extremely intelligent. They're very collaborative. They had huge roles in sort of shaping these two characters um, and uh, having input into the script, and uh, they were phenomenal collaborators on this movie. One of the things, when you, when you went to make this film, you had no idea this was going to be Anton Yeltsin's last role. So, I mean... The film is dedicated to him as key point. So, can you tell me a wee bit about your experience of working with Anton and what he was like on set? 
Yeah, Anton was absolutely just a source of kind of light and life and overflowing creativity on set. Um, it's a very kind of, uh, there's a lot of deadpan aesthetic in the movie, and he's really the force that breaks that. He's the exception. Um, so he brings tremendous energy to the movie, and he did the same thing on set. Uh, he's such a creative guy. Uh, such a wonderful improviser um, and just brought in a lot to the movie. Perfect. Thank you very much. Thank you. Hello, Anya. Tell me about Lily. This must have been a character that must have been a gift to play. She was. She was. It was actually, um, I feel very instinctually about my characters and I really love them, which is sometimes a problem when you're playing somebody that's um, not the nicest human being in the world. And so on set, people kept saying, you know, she's such a terrible person. And I just really defend her. Once the movie was done, I was a bit like, oh, she's a bit toxic, isn't she? Um, but she just, I think everyone knows a Lily that has a really strong, polished veneer and is trying so hard to keep it together. I think that's kind of the word for Lily. She's just trying. She's trying all the time. And underneath, she's just a swirling ball of anxiety and chaos and rage. And so it was, it was just really fascinating to kind of strip away those layers and see the person underneath. This is Anton Yeltsin's last role, and I mean, it, uh, it's dedicated to him. Like, what was he like on set? What was he like to work with? He is such a beautiful human being. We all miss him very, very much, and it is definitely bittersweet to be here without him. But I think his performance in this is so incredibly bombastic and brilliant, and he took a role that a lesser actor, I think, would have made a bit blah, and he made it something integral to the story and really, really staggeringly beautiful as a human being. He loved life so much and he was such a great gift to have every single day and he made all of us laugh and made all of us happy. So we really, really miss him and the film is rightfully dedicated to him. I couldn't have said it better. Thank you very much. So that's my interview with Corey Finley and Anya Taylor-Joy and I really recommend trying to see Thoroughbreds if you get the chance. Uh, if you like films like Heathers and Cruel Intentions and American Psycho, it's definitely a film for you. Uh, another film that's out this week is Ghost Stories, another film I saw at London Film Festival and I absolutely adore. But uh, I caught up with uh, one of Banterflix's very own Chris Gray to talk about the film. But in true Banterflix fashion, what started out as a general review of ghost stories ended up into a wider discussion on the horror genre itself. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, my name is Professor Philip Goodman. <coughs> my job is to explain the unexplainable, untangle the truth from the fiction. You don't have to have your life ruled by superstitious fear. So I'm joined now by Chris Gray and we're going to be talking about Ghost Stories which is out this week. I'm a huge fan of this film Chris, uh, seen it in London last year but for any of our listeners who haven't heard me ramble on about this film, tell them a little bit about, set us up, what's Ghost Stories all about? Uh, Ghost Stories is from uh, Andy, Andy Riley and uh, Jeremy Dyson, the latter who's most famous for The League of Gentlemen, who have collaborated together to create this analogy series of stories within one film. The plot show follows a paranormal investigator who wants to debunk certain cases. His hero from previous years presents him with a new case and he goes to follow three individual cases that may or may not be linked together. Perfectly. I couldn't have said it better myself. I, as I said, and I, I keep going about this, I seen this last year at the London Film Festival. There was this last year and Shape of Water. And I'll be honest, I couldn't pick which was my two favourite films of last year. I am a huge horror fan. I went in 
with uh, the recommendation actually of the QFT's Michael Staley and I went in zero expectations and loved it. It's a horror film that, that works and I didn't expect to because of that anthology format. I hate stuff like VHS. I, I'm not a big fan of it. It's It has its moments but that type of thing usually doesn't work for me. This worked and I think I, I, I liked it more because I think it's one of those films that improves second, third, fourth viewing. I've seen this three times now and it just gets better and I want to be very careful not to spoil because it's a film that I think we well we seen this both at the Odeon uh, at the Scream on scene and I don't know, it was a very unruly audience Mm -hmm. but what I loved about it was there was an audience member behind me who was clearly getting terrified maybe slightly over terrified by this film (laughs) but the whole way through it was going through oh this is what's going to happen this is what's going to happen and I sat there with childish glee and sat and said to myself, you are so far off, love. You don't know where this film's going to go. And so, so for me, having watched it a couple of times now, I find that the way this film does go works really, really well. But for you, from watching this first time round at the Odeon, how do you find that experience? Well, before I get into that, can I recommend something to you, Jim? I think the quintessential word here for this film is that it's British. Uh, and that helps it already. Already my feet were becoming more affectionate towards it uh, in the first few moments being British. If you go back to the 1970s and you've got The Vault of Horror or Asylum, which are an analogy series of films, uh, they they are wonderfully weird. And um, now I will say they probably pull the links together a little tighter than what Ghost Stories does. I mean, I'm not saying I dislike Ghost Stories. I think Ghost Stories was full of wonderful little chilling moments. And, um, and I like the notion, again, I'll refer back to Jeremy Dyson, the one of the writers League of Gentlemen fame, he has presented a number of characters who may or may or not um, be deserving of their own fate here. Um, very much like League of Gentlemen, only the laughs aren't uh, aren't uh, spewing out. This is played for the chills, not the, the laughs. Um, so I, I had I had fun with it. Um, I would say again, without um, possibly teetering on spoiler here. I don't think the payoffs are as, are as strong uh, in comparison to maybe last year's The Ritual, which I thought, even though it played every trope that you are you recognise, there's Evil Dead, there's Blair Witch, there's The Wicker Man, the payoff was incredible. I thought uh, compared to, I just, I wasn't expecting, or maybe I, I was led to it, but I wasn't expecting it. Um, ghost stories, payoffs for each individual story weren't as cutthroat for me. Maybe I do need to give it that second, third, uh, um, uh, viewing? I think it works on the second third viewing. For me, anyway, I, I see more into it and I see the path this film goes down. When you watch it the second and the third time round, you can see that it's much clearer. It's signposted much earlier on and the way in which that it works itself, like little things about when we see Alex Lawther's character mm-hmm. introduce Simon, who's just oh, great. He's, brilliant as well. he's great, but then Alex Lawther is pretty much yeah. great. In, in everything. I've been raving about his performance in Freak Show, a film that nobody seems to have seen. But when I seen that the second time round, there's little things I picked up with that that I didn't pick up in the first time round. You go, right, okay, it's the fact, well, you know, there's a reason why we're never introduced to his parents. We're never, where we, where he would maybe have parents, but we don't know what they look like. It's just little things like that, that just when I, when I watch it the second, third time round, works. Now, you've mentioned, of course, that the, the, the key thing I, I missed there, British. I am a big fan of, of British horror. I, and, and coming back to your point about on anthology, I have no problem with anthology series. 
it's the way that they, they've kind of tweaked over the years, particularly that VHS format. Yeah. That kind of, the, when I, I was sold this at the London Film Festival, was that this was something along that lines. And that meant me go, oh, no, <laughs> I don't really want to see a British VHS. Yeah. But I think the point I'm trying to make in my normal rambly, rambly way is that it's so mu- it's, it's more than that. It's done so in a much cleverer way, I think, than we've seen with any of those kind of the VHS and ABCs of death. That's probably my long-winded way. Again, maybe because it is British, I just immediately wanted to hug it, um, but I felt the same way about Paddington too. Um, those are two very different films. Although they are, they both contain the who's who of who, who's the who of British comedy. You know, you've got Paul Whitehouse in this one, and um, which I was always up for. Um, Paul Whitehouse was always a great actor, and I'm I'm glad to see he's not doing the the Aviva commercials at this point. Um, the other point I was going to try and make about this one is that British horror hasn't had the greatest um, process on cinema. What you were saying earlier on about the third, fourth viewing, I'm quite you've upped me up for that. I'm quite looking forward to that. I do think this film will actually play very well on television. I, it does feel very much. I mean, aside from the one moment where Alex Lothar is in a car with a mobile phone, this film could have been made 20 years ago and it could have been made last year, which it was. So I sort of see it becoming a bit of a favourite. Coming, I can see it being played on BBC4 a few nights before Halloween every year. Um, um, it does have those right spine-chilling moments that, uh, that uh, just tickle your brain as well. I agree with everything you're saying. This is a boring podcast for anyone that's listening, but... I, I want to come back because you mentioned The Ritual and, and it's a film I haven't seen and it's a film I was actually steered away from when we actually did the TV show because uh, our critic at the time, Therese Ray, just was not a fan of that film. At, at the time it was screened, I think it was another Odeon Scream Unseen we sent Therese to. But I'll come back to you in a minute about that film. What I loved about this was even though all the kind of the cheap tricks that is in any horror director's parlour tricks... They're all there, you know. The you know all the, the cheap scares are there. But did you notice that the uh, tagline, "The brain sees what it wants to see"? Several moments throughout uh, ghost stories, did I have to rub my eyes to make sure that I wasn't seeing something that wasn't there? For example, Alex Lothar's in a car. The car seat ha- takes on this ghostly appearance, and you think, "Is that a ghost, or is that that's just that's just the car seat?" Uh, and at that point, either now that's me being paranoid about it, but has the film finally got to me so, to to such a degree that now that's what I'm going to be visualising for the next? And there are several other moments from there towards the end. Um, again, I would say the one thing I do disagree with you on is that the payoffs for each individual story aren't as well set up, but there are enough spine-chilling moments and even doses of humour to keep me interested throughout the movie. I agree. This is where we start to disagree. I, I sense that the payoffs that we get on those individual moments, they don't work as individual narratives. I, I, I agree with you on that one. But I think when you sit back and then watch them and how the current, how those, all those underlying themes that those three stories explore, they're all... On the lying underneath the surface is the grand kind of story that's going on and when I've watched that now a couple of times I pick that up more like you've mentioned I, w- I want to come back to because it, it was one of the things I really wanted to big up I've talked about Alex Lothar I, I love that, that that man you know he's just a fantastic young actor but Paul Whitehouse you know you mentioned it's, it's great to see him on the big screen he's someone who I know Johnny Depp you know whether you're still a Johnny lover or not Johnny Depp has, has praised Paul Whitehouse as being one of the best actors he ever got the opportunity to work with. It's great to see him, him on the big screen. And again, in that small little vignette that he's in, 
he's great. And again, whether you whether you maybe don't think the payoffs there, I think that little it, of those three stories, I think his is my favourite, and I think his is my favourite probably because I, it just was one of those ones that that got under my skin and stayed there, and you kind of oh well, this is going to jump out, this is going to happen, this is going to happen. Oh, you're going to do something slightly different. But I think I love that sequence just because it's Paul Whitehouse. And Paul Whitehouse just elevates that little narrative around him. We're back on a green territory here now, Jim, because I, I love Paul Whitehouse's pieces. Harry and Phil and Chum's oh, scariest thing in the 90s. Um, he's wonderful in that scene. And again, I'm going back to my quote that I said earlier, that these characters may or may not be deserving of these particular fates and I have to say oh, that was also my favourite out of the three stories um, although Alex Lothar again <laughs> he creeps me out when he wants to I would still hang out with him anytime he wants um, it, uh, yeah the, the Paul Whitehouse moment is I, I'm actually getting a few uh, goosebumps now just thinking about it um, so yeah you have as well Martin Freeman and Martin Freeman is someone I'll be honest with you, is kind of, you know, he's, he's cinematic Marmite for me. I can take him or leave him. I'm really not a fan of his house-style American accent in the Avengers franchise, but that's a completely different thing. But here he's playing against type, and he's he's great in that role. He's not playing the kind of, like, bumbling kind of character, the bumbling Dr. Watson in Sherlock. He's not playing, you know, quintessential, stereotypical uh, Bilbo Baggins. He's playing something slightly different. And, and that, again, that's why this film works for me. There's, there's little things. Yes, it's all in its face value. It's a straightforward horror movie. But there's other little things that are going on and other things that are, where we have actors playing against type. And I just love it. I, I, I think I'm just much more positive about it than you, Chris. And I think it's because I... I don't know. But anyway, Martin Freeman. Well... I would say before I speak about Martin Freeman, you have helped me to rewatch it again, and I look forward to seeing it next Halloween. Uh, you know, a few nights beforehand, uh, and I'm I will be a little more attentive for those underlying themes or or those uh, little little niggles that I've missed. So again, I mean, I did really like this film. Um, I I just. I, again, the payoffs weren't so But again, I'm looking forward to a revisit. Uh, Martin Freeman, he, I will say his role is very similar to that of The World's End, uh, where it is that uptight square who, who maybe does know more than he's, he's letting on um, uh, in a suit. Uh, but uh, but again, he he's, he's, the, he's the actor and Martin Freeman because he's probably the most famous of the lot when they're selling this to the US. Um, so uh, I, I do think Alex Lothar was the, the real star of the show um, uh, because he didn't have the most interesting story, but yet he's just the strongest uh, of, of a lot of them. Um, and Paul Whitehouse is always welcome. Yeah, yeah I, I can't disagree. You know, this is based, it's based on a, a West End play that was uh, written by Jeremy Dyson. He was the original creator of that. It was then adapted from, from the West End to the big screen. The obvious comparison there is, is The Woman in Black, I haven't seen the original stage play of this. I really, really want to. I'm kind of hoping that with if this film is a success, that we might see that resurrected. I don't know. In the in the stage play, I know it's based as kind of almost it's a presentation that's going through, and that's how this kind of narrative unfolds as Goodman tells the stories of these these three interconnected stories and how he tried to debunk them. I'm assuming you haven't seen the stage play. No. We can't really compare and contrast, but I, I think that's maybe why. Do you think this might be something for you who's maybe sitting here saying, I have some reservations about the film? 
do you maybe think it might have been something and I, and it's kind of the impossible question I know do you think it's maybe something that's maybe been lost in translation that would have worked on stage that maybe necessarily didn't work on the big screen because they're two completely different mediums no, I don't think so. In fact, if I, I understand when, when you get to cinema, you have to flesh out the items, or if you're doing an adaptation of a novel, then it's slash and burn. You know, some I don't know, Peter Jackson has has recently shown that you can do the former rather than the latter um, with with it. Um, what you were describing there, if the stage show is in fact a, a sort of presentation, I can actually see that, and then you're relying a lot more on the vocals or the just maybe one single actor informing of a story with particular. Um, with particular visuals, but a very limited set of visuals. I think I don't think the the case has been the case is that anything's been lost in translation. I, th- I think maybe they just haven't fleshed it out. But it was such an admirable attempt. I can't really. I, can't, I don't. I don't want my reservations to totally cloud anybody going to see this. I think it's um, it's certainly one of the f- finer horror films of the past year. And uh, you know, I, again, I always have my reservations about horror for the past ten years. Um, I've always said the best horror film of the past ten years was Coraline, and that shows you how the decline of cinema horror has been so drastic that I'm now resorting to a film that's. In, well, it's aimed at children. I don't always say it is is for children, Coraline. Um, but it, I did think it was the only film that actually managed to get under my sin, skin in the past ten years. Well, I know you've mentioned the ritual, and I do want to come back to generally with the horror genre in in, in a second because I I tend to agree with you. I maybe I wouldn't go as far as to say as Coraline is my favorite horror film of the last ten years, but. You've mentioned the ritual, and I know we're kind of here talking about ghost stories, but that's what we do at Matterflix. We go on little tangents and segues. So what was it about the ritual? I know you've touched on it, but what was it that, that worked for you in that film that maybe worked slightly better in the ritual than it did here in ghost stories? Yeah, now that you bring it up, it, the ritual does seem like a stronger film to me. Again, all the tropes were very familiar. You were sitting there, there's Evil Dead, there's Blair Witch, there's the Wicker Man, and... Maybe because I felt more unfamiliar territory at that point, but those elements were done well. They weren't done as a parody or they weren't done as shoddily where I would feel, oh, well, you're just ripping that off. The, the, the elements were done very, very well. Um, there's also another sideline storyline uh, to the ritual where the, the friends in question are actually getting away because they're feeling guilty about one of their previous friends who, who was killed in a... Um, market shoot up and that's a that's a that's an element that keeps revisiting these characters throughout their traumatic way through this dark forest uh not to mention the pale i don't want to say anything more but um but i i got my bang for my buck in the last and which i thought was quite brave for a horror film to do usually horror films tend to do the they won't see this coming moment and then the ending becomes too unfathomable to grasp for the audience uh, this one I was able to say yep that would happen. Well that's maybe why I come back to this adaptation from the stage to screen without spoiling ghost stories the the way in which it resolves itself and the way in which the narrative concludes itself. I come back to the point I don't think anybody going in at the outset who, who hadn't seen the stage play would know that was the way this film was going to resolve itself I can, without having seen the stage play, I can see how that final scene would work tremendously on the stage. Mm-hmm. I can, I can see that yes, in my I, head. Me too. But I can get why that might seem very convoluted and contrived on 
the screen rather than the stage show. I maybe mean, I, I'm I'm kind of rambling. I don't really have a question to ask back to, but just your thoughts on that. Well, what I said earlier, I do think this would look better on television, to be honest, um, because it did remind me of the various horrors, or the, the various, I mean, uh, Whistle on and Come to You, based on M.R. James's uh, novel, it's you know from the 1960s, if you ever get it, guys, please watch it, it's terrifying, um, and there was a remake with John Hurt, which wasn't as, uh, as well received, but... Um, but maybe ghost stories will lend itself to television, the small screen, a lot better. You won't have a, a frustrating audience behind you who's trying to work it out. Um, what you're saying, not to give anything away, the ending is, it's, you know, compared to the ritual, it's simpler. I'm using inverted commas there. And therefore, it probably would be received a bit better when on the small screen. So you're, you're sitting there in a, in a smaller room uh, and it'll be a lot more intimate. So I would say that would be to its advantage and again I look forward to seeing it next year on Halloween so we're close to it I, I agree with you you know it's it's one of those things you know I think you mentioned the fact that it, it might look well on television we have writers like we, we've two we've two writers here writers co-directors who, who've worked in this uh, one who's worked heavily with the League of Gentlemen which is a fantastic TV series which I love which of course borrows tropes and cliches and moments from horror films and puts them on the small screen when they did that with the League of Gentlemen film I, I actually am one of those few people that actually quite like the League of Gentlemen film because the fact that it is so bombastically bonkers and weird and and postmodern and I mean I'm I, without going into kind of discussing about horror and, and the the tropes and, and talking about postmodern horror which I'm a big big fan of when it's done well the League of Gentlemen film was really really clever for me but I can get why there was maybe audience who just wanted the TV series yep. on the big screen. So maybe this is a case of of writers and directors who are used to the medium of television mm-hmm. and maybe yeah, there's like something maybe when you see it on the big screen, maybe that, that spectacle, that reliance on what we see where we have seen stuff that's contrived and, and been taken from elsewhere, like going off on a tangent, as I've said we do, we look at say Lara Croft, mm-hmm. which was out a few weeks ago. Tomb Raider as a video game stole ideas aplenty from all the films like from Indiana Jones from all that kind of stuff and then it put it on in the video game but then when you see that on the big screen well you go well that's just taken from you know Indiana Jones the last yeah. crusade you know it doesn't have an original tooth in its head and you kind of sit there and go I want to be watching this I don't want to be watching that this film ghost stories you know it, it does borrow a little like there's moments like you mentioned Alex Law the character there's a scene in the car that is just ripped, you know, the sequences involving in that scene that are just ripped from Evil Dead. Mm. The, in the camera work that we see there, it's it's great. And, but I never got a sense of sitting there going, I wish I was watching Evil Dead. I was enjoying my yeah, time yeah. watching that. Now, going off and speaking generally, you've mentioned about the fact that the horror genre maybe for you isn't in a great place, or for you as a cinema goer, as you as a horror fan, you know, you've mentioned Carline has been one of your own personal favourites over the last 10 years. Why do you think, this is a big loaded question, why do you think that that is the case, that we're not seeing the great horror films that we've had over the years, and you know, that made me fall in love with the genre, because there's more to horror than just slasher movies, there's more to horror than just gore. I love a horror film that gets under your skin and stays there and just sends a shudder down your spine. That's what I love. There's a few I would maybe recommend. I'll come back to them in a minute. But why for you as a viewer do you feel we're not seeing those great horror films? Oh, I've got several answers to this. First of all, we've seen so many horrors because horror is one of the most 
budget-friendly genres out there. You don't have to pay any A-list stars. The moment you pay an A-list star to star in a horror movie is the moment the audience says, that's an A-list star, they'll survive, I know what happens in the end, no thanks. Uh, if you've got a load of people who nobody recognises, <laughs> they could have all their heads off by the end. Um, that's And so, I mean... I mean, look at Get Out. The budget was four point five million, and look at its in, uh, its takings. Don't breathe. The Sam Raimi uh, produced one. There, ha- it, it cost about nineteen. I don't think. I think it was about nineteen million. Could be wrong. Might want to check that. But I mean, again, such a small budget for uh, for blockbuster by blockbuster standards. So we've probably been inundated with too many horrors. Uh, second of all, maybe falling on this this argument quite early on, but. Maybe all the best ideas have already been taken, so um, I know I could get uh, a load of people arguing that one, and you know, and, and that'd be a really good debate sometime we could have. Um, so, uh, but I do also believe. I remember six years ago speaking with a friend, and he said to me, he just believes that horror movies are quiet, 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 loud noise. And it was that point. I remember going to see Annabelle very close to that that conversation, and. I tried my best. I, I said to myself, was he right did, or did that cloud my judgment? And I think he was right at that time. So Annabelle, I remember, had one great scare in the first 10 minutes. And I, I sat there and I applauded and said, yep, you, you got me. Uh, the rest of it was it was exactly the same. So um, possibly they're spending their their best scare for the first 10 minutes, at which point they're, 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 they're exhausted by the end of it. Um, and and also, uh, you know, in the past twenty years, you could, un- you know, it, not not to not to be too heavy on, but maybe horrors aren't as conventional to be scary now. I mean, I go into the HMV and I find Underworld in in the horror section. Underworld's an action movie, surely, but uh, but no, no, it's in the in the horror section. So again, maybe there's been a segregation of what horror can be, which I kind of applaud a bit as well, because I think horror can be comedy, it can be sci-fi, it can be uh, every other genre, it can be a kids movie as well. It doesn't necessarily mean I mean, just because it has a team rating on it doesn't mean it's going to be a scary movie. Yeah, I mean, hey, don't don't get me started on this, Chris. This, this podcast will go for hours. I I wouldn't go so far as to say it hasn't been great horror films in the last 10 years. I, I think there has, but I think there's a possibility they're, they're becoming harder to find. I think if you're just looking from mainstream studios for your, your horror fix, you're looking in the wrong place. Generally, and, you know, I'm... I've talked at nauseam about how much I, I just detested it. Mm-hmm. And for people talking about being this wonderfully amazing horror film, it just wasn't. Yes, I know it was a horror adventure and it, it was aimed at a younger audience than me. I just never find myself getting scared by it. I never find myself at ease. And I come back to the point that it was never going to go as, as far as it, it kind of hinted or maybe claimed in pre-production that it would go because it is a kind of similar to what you're kind of saying with the A-list cast because it's produced by a mainstream studio the the Conjuring franchise I have a soft spot because I like James Wan and James Wan can construct a horror scene I can see where he's going you know I can see where he's going a mile away I can see the reference points to the the horror films from the 70s and the 80s and that nostalgia that he has but he's someone who in himself as a director through his his uh, DOP, through his editing, can 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 construct a scare. There's there's a scene in The Conjuring two, with just a shadow and a painting, and you know it's it's great. It's a well done sequence. You know I love stuff. You know like the Babadook, 
I love stuff like The Witch and I love stuff like It Comes at Night because It Comes at Night is just a fantastic horror film that that makes you think when you look at the trailers I can see that it lied the trailer you know but we've talked about this before trailers and and trailer cutting will lie and sell their soul to get you to buy your mm-hmm. cinema ticket and I've never seen a film where people have so disliked something as much because when oh well what is the it that comes at night the it is paranoia the paranoia and your kind of your sense of self doubt and the worries and the and your thoughts and your deepest darkest you know depraved thoughts you know those are the things that come at night those are the horror films that I love and have stayed with me I would even go to far we talked about this with Jared Torbett um, a few weeks ago and we talked about Veronica which is on Netflix now dubbed the scariest film for the last 10 years it's not again it's not by any inch you know it's we've seen it before it works on a small budget but it's I, I have to say if you want really good horror you have to you know you have to not be lazy you have to move away from your mainstream multiplex there's an abundance of great horror films lurking within foreign cinema you know, um, stuff like Under the Shadows, um, Raw as well, which is fantastic and they're great, but I I sense so many people will go, mm-hmm. oh, wait for the, the, the remake. I don't want to read a film. It's like, you don't, we have an expletive break in reading. We, you oh, read a fucking film. Since Let Me In, Let the Right One In, etc. So uh, there's, there's, that's all you need to say to them. Let the right one in, let me in. Um, so yeah, I, I'll take that advice on board. Unfortunately, I haven't seen The Witch, or which, which has been out of Netflix very recently, so that's a night in. Um, but yes, you're quite... Maybe it is my own, my own fault, because I get... I wouldn't say I'm overly into horror. Some people think I am. I'm really not. I love cinema in general, which is great because then I get an amalgamation of all genres. Um, but maybe when it comes to horror, I'm only taking what's exe- what's what's really in front of me at the multiplex. Um, so I will have to make a better effort in that. Uh, and uh, yeah, but Raw is fabulous, and I, I urge everyone to see it, uh, just not with their parents. Yeah, don't don't watch Raw if with your parents. Definitely not. You know. I, I'm. I kind of since we, we know we started this talking about ghost stories, and we've kind of went off on a tangent. And I've kind of said, Chris, what scares me? And I like it when a horror film, you know, it it plays with your kind of preconceptions, and then it it doesn't just rely on its composer to scare you. Mm-hmm. It gets under your skin. It stays there. It sends a shudder down your spine, and you'll find yourself thinking about it maybe two, three days. Or, or maybe revisit it again a second time and maybe having a different reading of the film, you know. Stuff like The Witch is just so clever in that way. It comes at night, again, as another one of those films. But but that's what scares me. Coming back to that general term, like, what scares you? What is the thing? When you go to horror film, the horror films you love, and whether or not it's, you know, you've mentioned the ritual that worked for you, what are the other films, or what is it about horror films that when a horror film's working for you, what scares you? Um, I'm go- probably going to lean towards the, the religious aspect because the, I always say The Exorcist is, is my favourite horror film um, and then followed by Bride of Frankenstein although Bride of Frankenstein's more of an aesthetic and more of a classic and then followed by that by Carry On Screaming but that's for obvious reasons um, uh, the, the Exorcist and The Omen are probably the two top strong ones I, I maybe because of my um, relative belief in uh, the higher powers 
I find the Exorcist extremely strong at times and you know you only have to watch the, the first ever DVD release and William Friedkin shows up and, and, and explains if you do believe that the world is, is, is full of good and evil and you do believe that good can come overcome that will happen for you however if you believe bad will, be, will prevail you'll be reinforcing that idea as well by watching this movie so um, I, I can always deal with I mean the ritual was really really good but it was a fantasy in, in the end and that's one thing that possibly because I was reading a lot of fantasy and watching a lot of fantasy during my teen years I have become a little more adept and that might be one of the reasons why I'm not re- reacting as well to many horror films of the past 10 years um, and that's why Coraline gets a, a vote because Coraline uses that fantasy element and then it does creep under your skin and it tells you not to, to just be careful what you wish for um, so I mean admittedly nuclear war and um, and uh, and uh, uh, just uh, tyrants, they scare me more than monsters do. Donald Trump scares you more than anything. But uh, coming back to you know, The Exorcist, I, I always bring this point up. The Exorcist, you know, yes, it's a horror film, but it's also a film that's kind of just on the themes you're talking about. It's a film about faith. It is, mm-hmm. you know, the, I've always kind of argued with people who say, oh, it's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a travesty of a film and it's so terrible for the Catholic Church. <laughs> it's not in any means. It is a film about faith, but in, in faith in so many levels. Mm-hmm. Yes, there's religious faith there, but there's also a mother's faith in her, that, in her daughter. It's, it's such a great film. I would, I would say it expands upon just kind of being an out and right horror film. Bringing it back to ghost stories. We've had kind of almost two kind of very different reactions to the film. Maybe it's a case of maybe listening to people, possibly people like me, who who hype the hype and who who build it up. I come back to I was talking about Veronica very briefly. We talked about this in the TV show, hyped beyond belief. I seen that film at London as well before it was picked up by Netflix, and I really enjoyed it. When I watched it the second time round, when you look at all the kind of advertisements through Facebook and various social media outlets, oh, this is gonna, you know, so many viewers can't get to the end of this film, and you're like, really? Why? Do you get a sense that's maybe, I had that maybe much more positive reaction to the film, I came in cold, I came in with zero expectations, as I, as I say, I was recommended to by Michael Staley here at the QFT, who told me, look, come and see this film, I've heard good things about it, when he sold me the brief, as I said at the very start, uh, a VHS kind of kind of anthology kind of thing. Nah, you're you're alright. Even if it is a British spin on it, even if it is from the League of Gentlemen guys, ugh. And went in with zero expectations and just found myself from as I come back to that that Paul Whitehouse sequence. Okay, you've got my attention. All right, okay, we're going here. We're going here. Oh, okay, I didn't say that. Come, we're going here. Do you think there's a sense that maybe the film was hyped to you, possibly by people like me, or maybe you went in with more? Because maybe you went in thinking you were going to see this wonderful horror film, this great, this great British horror film. Maybe that's why you had the reaction you had. No, I, I, I believe I try to treat every film as e- uh, equally. I mean, I will go into ghost stories with the same expectation of, uh, or the same borderline expectation as I will go into Star Wars: The Last Jedi, and let the film do its own work. And again, that, again, the reservation I have is that the payoffs weren't overly great overly there however you have convinced me to go revisit it is a really well made film and there are delights that would make mr james uh, very proud to be british uh, part of the bastion of british horror and uh, so no i don't think it i i certainly didn't dislike it i i thought it was enjoyable i 
thought the certain moments really did work up my spine. I did have one woman like yourself behind me reacting a bit over the top. You know, there was a particular four-letter word going off every few moments. I thought she was Alan Partridge, to be to be honest. Um, so no, no, I, I I don't think I had any expectation for it. I hadn't actually heard much about it aside from the promos and and. Let's face it, Jim. We we both know not to, not to to uh, take endorsements on posters at uh, at their value because because the word great could be well out of context. I would love to say I'm older and wiser and always you know tend to disagree with what posters say, but you know we we already know trailers lie, posters lie, everybody lies, Chris. But um, yeah, I, I think that's a perfect note to, to leave this podcast. I think, you know, whilst maybe have, we have different reactions to the film, I think we're still, I know I am, I'm largely positive about this film. I, I would recommend anyone who's a horror fan, who's maybe a bit like you, has found myself a little bit disillusioned by the mainstream product that we've been served up. And I think that's why I like this film so much. That whilst it's maybe not, you know, uh, a mainstream studio, it's got a recognisable cast. I think it's Lionsgate is is distributing this. Yeah. I think f- with the cons- with the preconceptions I had for that type of content that I was going to get, I come back to, I'm the person who's looking to get my horror fix from you know Spanish cinema, from Australian cinema, from weird and wonderful lands I never knew existed that are just taking the horror genre and doing what great directors did. But in my typical rambly way, I come back to for something that is pretty much a mainstream horror film I, I think it, it does its job and deliver yeah. but we shall leave it there and thank you very much Chris so that pretty much brings this podcast to a close thank you as always for listening we'll be back soon with another episode if you can't wait until then don't forget you can check out our website for our complete back catalogue but for now until our next episode goodbye <laughs>